0: I by nature am a planner, I do all sorts of things in advance, and that includes uh, how we move through our Sunday morning studies. I usually lay those out a year at a time. Uh, But being a normal and fallible human being, I was surprised to find when I opened the schedule this morning that we had completely left out an entire section of Mark chapter 7, and we're just going to skip over it because somewhere it got lost in the shuffle of my editing. However, I was pleased to find that grafting that back into our study this morning actually makes a good deal of sense. Uh, And so we're not going to start, as it says there, in chapter 8, verse 1, but a little bit earlier in verse 31 of chapter 7. But let me remind you where we've been, okay? A couple of pieces. One, uh, Mark has been in a passage of Scripture where it seems Based on his allusions, that's with an A, not an I, uh, his inferences, uh, and the stories he chooses to tell here, he's been on an agenda to connect the Jesus of this day and age of the Gospels with the God of the Old Testament. He wants to say this and that is the same, that what God did then, he is now doing now. There was an old Exodus, now there's a new Exodus. There was an old covenant, now there's a new covenant. Jesus is nothing short of the God of Israel. And so the second thing is, uh, part of what he's been doing uh, that we've seen the last few weeks is we've been seeing Jesus uh, working and teaching and doing miracles, not within the confines of Israel, but outside its borders in non-Jewish, in Gentile territory. In fact, as we're going to see this morning Uh, Jesus is going to feed 4,000 people with a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish just like he did 5,000 people just a chapter ago. The difference between these two stories is one he does in Israel and the other he does outside of Israel. In other words, Mark is trying to make a point that in the same way he says... The ministry in the Old Testament and the ministry in the New Testament is the same. The ministry of the God of Israel and the ministry of Jesus is the same. He also wants to say what Jesus has for the Jews is the same as what he has for the Gentiles, okay? These are the points that he's making, and that second one is especially important from the original audience of Mark's Gospel, which is a young church in Rome that's probably almost entirely made up of non-Jewish folks. They want to know what the gospel means for them. And so Mark has designed and put together his telling of the ministry and life and death and resurrection of Jesus to explain those things. Okay. And the last thing I want to lay out here, I want you to notice um, as we read, especially if you've been with us the last few weeks and you've seen what's going on in the passages, I want you to notice how many verbal connections there are both within all the reading we're going to do this morning and in the last few weeks. And I'll I'll give them to you in advance. Remember a few weeks ago that Jesus's reason for ending up up in the wilderness where the feeding of the 5,000 happens is because Herod has put John the Baptist to death. And so Jesus, looking for a place to grieve and to process and to recharge with his disciples, gets on a boat to go to a empty place, and he finds it not empty at all as people run along the shore with the boat and meet him where he lands, okay? Herod is going to show up this morning. I want you to notice how evident bread and the reality of bread is in the passage we're going to read. I want you to notice that when Jesus heals this deaf man in the beginning, he sighs, and then when he, he's confronted by the Pharisees, he sighs again, okay? And then lastly, I want you to notice how specifically hearing but also seeing runs through this text, okay? All of this to say that Mark is, um, like any good artist, deep. He's working with a lot of layers here. He's not just wanting to give the history of Jesus. He's wanting to selectively convey historical happenings of Jesus to make a point. And so he crafts this together. He edits it together. He weaves it together to make his point. And here it is. I'll give it to you up front. There's something like this deaf man that Jesus heals in the very beginning and the Pharisees. There's something like this deaf man and his disciples. There's something like this deaf man and you and I. Now watch how he does that masterfully beginning in chapter 7, verse 31. Then he returned... From the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee into the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ear and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. And he said to him, Epaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. And his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some have come from very far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, "'Why does this generation seek a sign? "'Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation.' And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, "'Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod.' And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread." And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Father, that question of Jesus at the end to his disciples rings in our ears this morning. It's the question you have for us. Do we not yet understand? I pray, Lord, that you would open our ears, that you would soften our heart, that you wouldn't just speak to us, that your word wouldn't just be passively present in our hearing, but that you would give us understanding, that you would make it possible for us to hear. We need your help, not just your word, but we need your healing so that we might hear this morning. We need you to open our minds to your word. We need you to create receptivity and not just broadcast your truth. And so we ask that you would do that. And just as we see it in Jesus's heart, we can ask in confidence that this is your will. And so that's what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're moving at a fast pace this morning. Usually in the Gospel of Mark, we've just been covering a paragraph, but there's quite a few pieces uh, in our reading this morning. And so just to review, it starts as Jesus moves from northwest of Israel to east of the Sea of Galilee, ending up in the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. Okay? This is a Roman-ruled primary Gentile-occupied territory near Israel. While he's there, a man who is deaf and has a speech impediment is brought to him. Jesus heals him. The next thing uh, is sometime in that time, in that general area, Jesus is teaching the massive crowds that are coming to him, and he's been doing so day after day, and the resources, the reserves, what, what little food people have brought runs out. Jesus comes to his disciples and says, I want to feed the people, and they say, how is that possible? And he feeds them miraculously from, uh, from seven loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Following that, he crosses back into Jewish territory and is instantly, as soon as he gets to the shore, it appears confronted again by the religious leaders of Israel, and they demand a sign from him, but he refuses. In fact, he doesn't just refuse and keep talking. He refuses, turns back around, and gets right back in the boat. And then finally, while they're in the boat, he warns his disciples. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. But simultaneously, they're looking at their, their little pantry, their shared resources. They get back in a boat to head back to the wilderness. And they go, oh man, we've only got one loaf of bread to share between the 13 of us. And so they hear somehow Jesus' warning, beware of the leaven, as some sort of a rebuke about them not bringing enough bread. And Jesus has this conversation and he says, have you learned nothing? What have we just been doing? Okay. And so this is, this is the reason why it's worthwhile to do this all together is both because this conclusion looks back on everything that we read before and because every miracle that we see here, specifically the healing of a deaf man, the feeding of the 4,000, and even this confrontation with the Pharisees is literally repeated. These are things we've already seen. They're similar to things that Jesus has already done. They're similar to conversations that Jesus has already has. They're all being laid out to show a pattern, to prepare us for that final paragraph, to draw attention uh, to that, okay? Um, I'll show you what I mean, okay? First, going back to chapter 7, It says in verse 31, as I mentioned, that he returns from the region of Tyre and Sidon. Um, That's in Phoenicia. And he goes to the Sea of Galilee, but not on the west side, where Capernaum is, where Jesus is from, where the Jews live, but the east side, okay? Uh, And on the east side is the Decapolis. And so again, it's Gentile territory. And notice what it says in verse 32. They, the citizens of this area, non-Jewish folks, brought to a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, okay? And so notice here, we can can observe a few things about this deaf man that are most likely true. When it says here that he had a speech impediment, and when Jesus heals him and he begins to speak, the idea is probably not that he was born deaf, right? Somehow, something has happened to him, and he's lost both the ability to hear and the ability to articulate in an understanding way, Okay. What's more important here, though, is when it says that word speech impediment, Mark reaches way into the recesses of the Greek language and grabs an incredibly unique term. We find mute people that Jesus heals throughout the Gospels. Even in other books of the Bible, we find mute people. But that's not the word Mark uses here. He uses a specific word, and it's only found one time in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Only once. Now, let's turn to that passage and see if that's relevant. As we've seen, Mark drops hints all the time. And one of his favorite places to drop hints towards is the book of Isaiah. And that's what he does here. Take a look with me at Isaiah 35. Now, if you want to understand this passage in its context, we happen to be going through Isaiah on Sunday nights, and we just touched this passage a few weeks ago, so you can check online uh, and listen here. Um, But Isaiah 35 is, is the close of the first half of the book of Isaiah, and it looks past all of the judgment, all of the judgment of the first half of the book to when God's going to do something new when he's going to do something with restoration and healing uh, and revival and these types of things. And specifically, I want you to notice what it says about this time period in verse five. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That super rare Greek word is the one Isaiah uses there for mute, okay? The tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. Okay. And so that last metaphor there is just one of a place where there is no life suddenly being a place of abundant life. Okay. Streams in the desert. Right. But effectively here, Isaiah says a time is coming where suddenly the blind will see. Suddenly, the lame will walk. Suddenly, the deaf will hear and the mute will praise God, okay? Now, here's the other thing you have to understand about Isaiah's context here. Leading up to this, he's been talking about blind people, but not physically blind people. In fact, he's not been talking about Gentiles, people who live outside the land like what we're reading in Mark. He's been talking about God's own people who are blind, Now a side note, we don't have time for this, but actually Mark has already talked about those passages and applied them to Israel and their religious leaders a few chapters earlier in quoting Isaiah chapter 6. All of this to say that what Isaiah is envisioning here is not just physical, but that physical healing is analogous to what God is going to do on the spiritual level. And so Mark, by quoting this, is not just saying, hey, Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 35. It's Jesus is the new thing that brings vision where there was none, where there was blindness, he brings sight. In fact, notice how he plays on this. It says that the deaf uh, would be hearing and the speech impaired would praise God. And that's what happens in the passage, right? Not just this man praises God, but these foreigners who don't know Isaiah 35, come to the same conclusion. Okay? In fact, notice what it says in verse 36. Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more they charged him, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Does that sound familiar? The words of these unknowing, un, uh, you know, haven't read Isaiah, Gentiles, is the language of Isaiah. They're coming to the conclusion. Now, why is that ironic? Because Israel doesn't get it. Here, these Gentiles who don't have the background, who weren't prepared, who haven't been coached for thousands of years on what God is about to do, they go, this is a big deal. But Israel doesn't get it. That's the point that Mark is trying to make. In fact, that's one of the things uh, that we've already been seeing is whereas God does these things uh, in Israel... And there's misunderstandings. Remember the woman just a few weeks ago, the Syrophoenician? She doesn't know anything about the scriptures. She comes to Jesus not having a dog in the race of being the people of Israel. And yet she's astounding Jesus with her faith. She knows who Jesus is. She trusts who Jesus is. She extends herself on the character of Jesus and finds what she's looking for. Whereas Israel is missing it. Okay? Okay. And so this happens, and it happens, again, uh, many times in Jesus' ministry. He does stuff like this, but Mark tells us about this one because it's pertinent to what happens next, because this isn't the only deaf man in Jesus' general vicinity. Okay. Now there's one last thing I want to point out here, just because I think it's super interesting. When we look at the way that Jesus heals people, it is diverse. Okay. Sometimes it's just verbal. Rise, take up your bed and walk. Sometimes there's a compassionate touch. Sometimes he speaks a specific word like he does here or when he says to the little girl, arise, Talitha Kumi, right? Uh, Sometimes he spits and makes mud and puts it in a a guy's eye. We'll see that next week. Here, it's super weird. He puts his fingers in the guy's ear and then he spits and touches the guy's tongue. But something struck me as I was reading this, okay? Remember that this is pre-ASL, There's no American sign language available to Jesus. There's no standardized way for a deaf and mute man to communicate with a non-deaf and non-mute world. And what Jesus does is uniquely tangible. It almost says to the man, I'm here and I'm going to do something about your ears and your tongue. It's right there. And this is the one thing I would say about the way that Jesus works in his healings. They're customized. You can't just take up these practices and say, okay, if we want to have healing, we got to stick fingers and ears, man, (laughs) because it won't even stand up to the way that Jesus does things. The diversity won't allow us to structuralize and systematize the way that God works. But one of the things we know about Jesus and see consistently is he knows the heart of everyone he deals with, and he deals with them intimately and personally, one by one. And he does so with this man as well. Now, we move from this scene of just a single individual to a huge crowd. Now, where does this crowd come from? Now, probably it comes from what we read in verse 36. He charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Jesus is in a new territory where he's unknown, but not for long, not after healing this man. In fact, this Decapolis area is the same area where he healed the demoniac a little bit earlier. And he actually sent him home and said, tell people what God has done for you. So again, Jesus' reputation precedes him, and he finds himself teaching multitudes, this time not in Israel and not on the nice green hills above the Sea of Galilee, but out in the wilderness. Now, notice here, one, how similar this feeding is to the feeding of the 5,000. Again, Jesus is teaching people away from towns. Again, they're out of food. Again, Jesus is compassionate. Again, he takes just a few loaves and multiplies it. Again, there's baskets left over. All that's the same. In fact, skeptics have sometimes gone, this is probably two traditions of the same story and Mark didn't know better, so he included them both. That really doesn't make any sense. And one of the reasons is because the following conversation Jesus has in the boat, Jesus talks about both. He says, did you not get the point of this and that? Okay. But second, the differences between these two are significant. We've already talked about one. Jesus does this miracle in a completely different setting for a completely different type of people. I'll give you a comparison. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have what has been famously titled the Sermon on the Mount. If you read the Gospel of Luke starting in chapter 6, you'll find a surprisingly similar but different sermon. And so what, what some people say is, okay, so basically we have one original speaking of Jesus, but it's been adjusted by two different groups of people, and we have that adjustment, that difference in these two places. That is to completely misunderstand Jesus' ministry. Okay. Whatever sermon I give in this church, I probably won't preach again. You've already heard it. But what if I was an itinerant preacher? Okay. When I preach in other churches, which I do on occasion, sometimes I preach new things. A lot of times I preach the same thing I preach here. It's already there. That's what it means to be an itinerant preacher. Jesus has one message. And so it's very, very uh, likely that Jesus, as he moved around, used the same parables used the same illustrations, gave even somewhat similar sermons to make similar points, even if they were custom fit to the circumstances, okay? In the same way, Jesus is in a different setting with a different group of people and he conveys who he is to these Gentiles in the same way that he did to other people. Why? Because he's the same person. Because the message is the same. Okay? But Mark isn't just saying, hey, Roman church that I'm writing to? Jesus wants to provide for you just like he did for Israel. Don't think that you're outside the pale of what God wants to do. He's actually setting us up for something else. In fact, notice the last set of differences in this story. Again, look at chapter eight, verse one. In those days when again, super important, Mark didn't forget what he wrote a page ago. Again is important to him. The repetition is important to him. In those days, again, a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, and he called his disciples to them and said, I have compassion on the crowd. Now, you may not notice without going back and reading, but that's different than how it played out with the feeding of the 5,000. Look at what it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 34. So this is the feeding of the 5,000. This is in the land of Israel. This is to Jewish people. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, What happens the first time? The disciples are looking around. They're checking their clock. Jesus is doing their thing. And they're thinking, oh man, it's getting late. These people have a long way to go home. We don't have food to share with all these people. We better remind Jesus and get them on the road to home. But what happens here? Jesus sets up the game the same way, but it's not the disciples who come. It's Jesus, and he comes to the disciples. And he says to them, read it again with me in verse 1. He called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? He's setting them up. This is a pop quiz. He's repeating this again for the disciples' sake to give them the opportunity to get the right answer that they got wrong last time. Last time, they didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know that they could start with five loaves and a couple of fish and end up with 12 baskets left over. Now Jesus is in the same place, and instead of waiting for them to worry about it, he approaches them and says, okay, what are we going to do about this? Okay. But they don't get it. They go, I don't know. What are we going to do, Jesus? And then another difference Last time, it was some young boy who provides his five loaves and two fishes. Here he goes right to the disciples. He says, what's left in your stores? Right? It's their bread on the line this time. Okay. Other than that, the story is basically the same, except one last thing that I want to point out, uh, which is instead of having 12 baskets left over, one for each disciple, here it's seven, one for each starting loaf. He starts with seven loaves of bread. He ends with seven baskets full. Another difference in these stories, another one that points to its different context, not the same word for basket. And it may be because, like I talked about last time, the last set were traditional Jewish wearable lunch baskets, okay, fanny packs. This is just the more generic word for basket. In fact, it's the word that's used when Paul is lowered down in the basket. And so it can be really big baskets, size isn't really a part of it. But more importantly, it's an appropriate word for a non-Jewish audience because they're not wearing the traditional Jewish lunch fanny packs, okay? So all of those differences are here. Jesus has compassion on the crowd, but again, Jesus has let the stores run out. He's been there teaching day after day, knowing that they're running short on, on um, provisions, and he goes to the disciples to get their input. He's trying to teach them. He's trying to instruct them but they don't get it. And so now the disciples are in a place where, just a week ago maybe, they see Jesus do the miraculous and turn a single lunch into a fully satisfying meal for 5,000 men, not counting women and children, and having a basket for each of them to carry leftover, lunch for each of them to go uh, leftovers, right? Uh, and here they see it happen again Mark wants us to get that. Now, verse 10, immediately he got in the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. And when he arrives on the other side, back in Israel proper, the Pharisees come. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. The Pharisees coming to test Jesus is a repeated theme. We've seen it before. okay. They've come and tested him by questioning his authority. They've come and tested him uh, in many ways. It shows here that their agenda, their seeking, is not authentic. Right? They're trying to trap Jesus. They don't want a sign to know if Jesus is legit. They want to test Jesus for a sign because they know he's not. Okay. They're not coming asking, they're coming proving but notice here, when they come, verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit. Okay, that word there for sighed deeply is the same word when Jesus healed the deaf man. It said he sighed and then said Epaphra. But here it's a deeper sigh. It's a, a sigh within. It's a groaning. It's heavier. But let's pause for a second and go back. Why does it record that Jesus sighed when he healed the deaf man? Why do you sigh in your life? Sometimes it's exasperation, right? Sometimes my kids ask me to do the same thing they asked me to do five minutes ago, and I sigh, right? Sometimes a sigh is almost that uncontrollable response to grief. It's like a sob, and that's how this word is used in other places. I would suggest to you the reason that Jesus sighs in the healing of this deaf man is the same reason he cries at the tomb of Lazarus. Have you ever thought about that? John chapter 11. Jesus delays going to visit his sick friend Lazarus until he dies. And then he goes and he sees all of the people weeping and he sees the tomb closed and it says that Jesus wept. The next thing Jesus does is raise Lazarus back to life. The general gist of the story is one of joy and we find Jesus weeping in the middle of the story. Why? Because death Because death is not God's plan. It's not God's design. It's because Jesus is grieved by the reality of where humanity is at. And it's the same with deafness and muteness. He sighs here because he's grieved that that's where this man is at. If you spiral back to the beginning of the Bible, how did those things come to be? The rebellion of our first parents. Why is there death? Because Adam ate of the tree. Why is there deafness and disability? Why is there pain and suffering? That's not just some sort of indifferent judgment that God meted out and went, wrong choice, wham. It's consequence and it's there and it grieves God and it grieves Jesus. And we see this throughout. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem, He weeps over the impending judgment on Jerusalem because they're not willing to receive him for who he really is, and he knows the consequence of that, and it grieves him. What did we just read for the hungry people in the wilderness, that Jesus had compassion on them? That word there for compassion is way more visceral than any English word that I can convey. In fact, the easiest way to get you to understand it is to utilize the Greek word. It's splanchia. Doesn't that sound visceral? It actually comes from where we get the same word, spleen. That's why if you read an old translation like the King James, it says that Jesus had bowels of compassion. It's gut-level, visceral emotion. Okay. He's grieved. But why do we find that same word here? Why does Jesus sigh here? It's because the Pharisees are deaf as well. And it may be here that this is an exasperated sigh. And it may be that it's a sorrowful one. And I would suggest it's probably both. Eventually, Jesus is going to give seven woes to the Pharisees. And woe has that same idea. A woe is, uh, is sad. And it is also angry. And those don't go apart. If you're an old enough parent to have watched your kids make really stupid and long-standing wrong choices, you know this woe. You know that it fills you with anger, not anger at your child, but anger for your child, even though it's anger at your child. And you're filled not just with anger, but also deep sorrow, because you know where things are headed. That is the sigh that Jesus has. And listen to his words. He sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, why does this generation seek a sign Now, let's paint the picture here. Are the Pharisees asking because they haven't seen Jesus do anything? Are they going, look, you have this reputation as a healer. Prove it. Are they saying, look, everybody thinks that you're the Messiah. Show us some evidence of that. Isaiah 35 says, the blind will see and the lame will walk. Where's that? They know. They've seen. They've heard. They've even set Jesus up. Remember the man who was paralyzed in his hand? And the Pharisees set him up. They invite him specifically to the synagogue, knowing Jesus is going to be there. And then they put him right up front so that Jesus can't possibly miss this man in need of help. And they go, let's see if he's willing to heal on the Sabbath and break the rule to do no work. In John, a man who's paralyzed, Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees see him carrying his mat that he was laying on in the road as he was begging as a lame man. And he's walking home, and they go, Why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? And he says, The one who healed me, he told me to take up my bed and walk. And they go, Who is the one who told you to take up your bed and walk? Not who is the one who healed you. Okay. The Pharisees here are saying, Show us a sign while they cover their eyes with both hands. They're not here to hear. They're not here to see. They've already come to their conclusion, and it's a conclusion against the evidence. And so what does Jesus say? He says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. In another gospel, it records that Jesus said, except one. The sign of the prophet Jonah, who was in the belly of the earth for three days and then rose again. He says, there's, there's another opportunity here. There's another incontrovertible piece of evidence that you're going to have to face. But he refuses, and he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now notice what happens next in verse 14. Now they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. Why are they so shortchanged? changed? Because they were just coming back into Galilee, just coming back home, just ready to replenish and restock. And then because of this confrontation with the Pharisees, they get right back in the boat and go back to Nowheresville, right? And they go, what are we going to do? We have just one loaf of bread, okay? And at the same time, notice what Jesus says, verse 15, he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, okay? Now, what he's not saying is, don't shop at Herod Mart. He's not saying, hey, if you're going to pick up bread, don't go to these, these stores, the ones that Herod runs, the ones that the Pharisees run, obviously. He's being metaphorical, right? In fact, leaven is a common metaphor in the scriptures for corruption, okay? Because when you take just flour and water and such, and then you add yeast, it grows, it becomes bigger, it changes it. He makes a warning here and he says, watch out for being like Herod and the Pharisees. And the question is, how are these two people alike? The Pharisees are staunch religionists. The Pharisees are committed to the law of God. Herod is a murderer and an adulterer who has just put John the Baptist to death because he didn't like the fact that he had taken his brother's wife, not John's wife, but Herod's brother, Philip's wife. Okay. What do these two men have in common? Both of them were deaf. Herod loved listening to John preach. He called for him. He summoned to him. He wanted to listen to him. And even when his wife said, you've got to get rid of that man, he put him in prison to protect him and basically make him the court preacher. And it says that he would often go and hear John gladly. But John had one and primary message for Herod. Repent. You can't have this woman as your wife. You've got to turn around and get off the road you're on. And Herod wouldn't. And Herod didn't. But it didn't stop him from listening. He heard, but he didn't respond. He didn't listen. What about the Pharisees? Same thing. They're witnessing the miracles of Jesus, they're hearing his preaching, they're vetting his credentials, and it's all coming up true, and yet they're unwilling to hear. Now, here's the thing we would think the disciples are in a different category. Mark already set us up to think that because earlier, when Jesus talks about the blind and the hardness of heart, he talks about everybody but the disciples. He says, I speak to the crowds. I speak to the religious leaders. I speak to all of Israel in parables because seeing let them not see and hearing let them not hear. He quotes from Isaiah 6 there. And he says, but to you, I speak without parables. I give the interpretation. But there is a danger for the disciples that they, that they harden, that they become blind, that they become resistant. Listen, the Pharisees and Herod, they're skeptics. They're not believers, they're not disciples. And if that's where you are this morning, first off, we're glad you're here. There's no better place to investigate Jesus. There's no better place to come to a conclusion on who Jesus was, however, However, we have to recognize we all come in to seeking God with a severe bias. Okay. And you go, well, I think my concerns, my questions, my doubts, my skepticism is valid. And I would say yes. In fact, skepticism, true investigative skepticism is uphold in the Bible as not just being good for non-Christians, but for Christians. In the book of Acts, A group of people uh, in the city of Berea listened to Paul preach as he proclaims Jesus from the Old Testament and saying, "Our Messiah has come." Look, the whole book told us this was going to happen, and it says that those Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians, the last town that Paul was in, because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true. And here is the thing: in the Greek, there, the "if" is a fourth-class conditional. First class conditional isn't an if, it's a then. Okay? If your mother says to you, hey, if you're going to the grocery store, will you pick up milk? Right as you're going out the door and you just said, I'm going to the store. It's not really an if. There's no hypothetical there, right? And we find first class conditionals throughout the New Testament. In Acts, in chapter 17, that's the only one in the entire New Testament that's a fourth class conditional. It means that they come going, yeah, right, let me see for myself. But Luke calls them Noble. He holds them up as an example. And it says, because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, therefore many of them believed. God says very fully, truthfully, honestly, if you seek me with all of my heart, you will find me. The danger is not your skepticism, it's your lack of self skepticism. The danger is, like the Pharisees, you wouldn't realize that you're not actually looking. The Herod and the Pharisees are in different places. Herod resists because of his sin. He doesn't want to know the truth because he wants to keep what he's chosen. And that can make it hard for us to hear. Now, I'm not telling you you have to give that stuff up just to look. But you have to realize that giving that stuff up is a cost. You have to realize that you don't want to pay it. You have to be honest about where you're really at. The Pharisees are on the opposite side. Why won't they see Jesus for who he is? Not because of their sin, but because of their self-righteousness. They don't need Jesus. In fact, Jesus is a threat to their entire foundation. Jesus says, I've come for sinners. And they go, we're not sinners. Jesus, in fact, there's an occasion where Jesus heals a blind man. And then he uses this metaphorically, just like here, and he, he talks about blindness. And the Pharisees come and they go, are you saying that we're blind? They're on the defense. And he goes, no, if you were blind, if you said you were blind, if you came and said you were blind, I would heal you. It's because you see that you're blind. See, the difference between physical blindness and spiritual blindness is physical blindness you never stop, you never forget. You know it. You're consciously aware. Spiritual blindness is the opposite. You go, I see just fine, thank you. Think of this. How does Jesus heal that deaf man? He says to a deaf man, be opened. What? The only one who can't hear those words is the one who needs to hear. And somehow through that, he becomes hearing. Here's the thing. Again, if you're a skeptic here, if you're going to explore Christianity, you have to do it on the grounds that Christianity presents. And so you have to come to it hypothetically, scientifically, and say, okay, let's perceive that it's so. How does that play out? And here's what the Bible says about you. It says that you're dead, that you're dead in your transgresses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2. It says that you're deaf, that before all of us, First Corinthians says, there's a veil so that we can't see as things are. It says that you're not actually looking for God, and God is not hiding, but he is seeking you, and you're the one on the run. Now, I know we don't like to believe that stuff about ourselves, and it does not come natural. But there's a major difference between saying, God, I'm trying to find you, where are you, and saying, God, come find me. There's a major difference between saying, God, why can't I see you, and saying, God, open my eyes. Okay? One presumes that you are objective and all-knowing and ready to validate And the other says, well, if the scriptures are true, then I am not an unbiased or good judge of these things, and I need something more. The Pharisees won't identify their need, and so Jesus has nothing for them. Don't make the same mistake. But those of you that are Christians this morning recognize that danger exists for us as well. The disciples should know better, but they need a warning. Beware of the Pharisees and Herod and their leaven. Beware of the same thing happening to you. The Pharisees are watching from a distance. Herod is hearing about it on the radio. The disciples have front row seats to Jesus' ministry. And he says, watch out. Watch out that you don't become hard or deaf or callous or blind. And what's ironic is Jesus says it at just the right time because what's going on? they're worried about bread. Notice how different their difference is here. Their blindness is not caused by them wanting to hold on to sin. It's not caused by them wanting to hold on to their own sense of self-righteousness. It's caused by fear and practical needs. They've gone full-blown myopic. All they can think about is this one loaf of bread. It's like Jesus, Jesus the Messiah is in the boat and all they can look at is this one loaf of bread. And Jesus tries to teach them, and and they're like, that's great, Jesus. Now, what are we going to do about this bread, right? They are one-track minding this. And notice what Jesus says. Verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? They saw, but they didn't perceive. They heard, but they didn't understand. That's the danger. The evidence is right in front of them. The testimony, the facts are there. They have all the facts, but they haven't actually thought them through. They haven't actually processed them. They haven't reflected. And so notice the questions he asks here, all rhetorical. Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? They thought that their problem was that they forgot to bring bread. Jesus says, no, your problem is that you forgot who I am right? He says, do you not remember? And then he quizzes them. He says, let's review the facts. Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And I love just the matter of factedness of this. This This is them opening up the books, right? This is an audit. This is an audit on Jesus's ministry, And they're just checking the facts. And they're probably doing it, I know, not on paper, but in their own memory. But it's so bare naked. There's no emotion to this. There's no anything. It's just, hey, when this happened, how much do we have left over? Twelve baskets from five loaves and two fish. And then again, in the seven, for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Listen. This is a hard one to wrap our minds around. But the Bible doesn't just say we need to know the truth. It says we need to make uh, be made receptive to the truth. There's something so messed up in you as a human being. There's something that's gone so wrong because of sin and rebellion and these types of things that you can't just hear the message. Any more than you can say, "Oh, well, I know how to how to fix deafness. We just need to talk louder." We just need to keep talking. They're just not hearing my instructions. No, they cannot hear the instructions. The problem is not that you don't have all the facts. The problem is that there's something in you bent against the facts. This is why Paul says in Romans about the entire world, every person you know, that we as humanity suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We take the few things that we know We'd stuff them in a trunk, and we sit on it, and we don't let it out. We do this all the time. Let me remind you, you're going to die. You don't always live that way. You don't always think that way. Okay? Let me remind you that you're merely human. How many people in our world seem to have completely neglected that and rule with an iron fist over their kingdom, no matter how big or how little, as if they were a god themselves? You live as if, uh, you know, this world is your plaything and that you're the center of your own universe, but you won't stop and think about just how much there is above and beyond you and beyond and beside and these types of things. We take creation itself and we go, man, that is beautiful, and we don't ask where it came from. We express our thanks for things, and we don't ask who's the giver. Why? Why? because there's something innately resistant within us. We don't just need new information. We need new hearts. And as Christians, we've been given a new heart, but it coexists with the old heart, and there's always the possibility of retreat. There's always the possibility, like the disciples, of stop learning, stop listening, of distraction and callousness of these types of things. A close friend of mine told me a story about her mother once. Her mother had been a Christian a long time, and she was praying once, and this was her prayer, God, right now I'm fighting you, please win. Isn't that interesting? That is a person who understands the human condition. That is a person who understands that we don't just need a sign. We need eyes to see. We don't just need the message of the gospel. We need to be given ears to hear. We don't just need a way forward. We need life itself. And that's what Jesus is offering, and that's what he's training the disciples for. In fact, what happens at this point in the book is basically uh, a four-chapter intensive just focused on the disciples and their inability to see. They're going to go through the ringer of who they think Jesus is and what's coming. They're going to get the answers wrong a lot. They're going to learn a lot of things that don't make sense and break their whole paradigm of what's going on. And that's Jesus' intention to open their eyes. Okay. In fact, let me just say one last thing. If you're in a period in your life where things have stopped making sense, where your answers no longer fit, where the truths no longer resonate or give you hope or comfort, that is probably already God graciously in your life, opening your eyes. Not opening your eyes to see, but opening your eyes to your own blindness. Even Plato said, the secret of knowledge is knowing what you do not know. If that's true in rational things, how much more in things that are unrational, that involve your will and your choices and your autonomy? One last piece of advice for those of you that are Christians. What do the disciples have here to fight against their own blindness? The past. Jesus says, let us review. Let us reflect. Let us remember. Do you know how often the Bible exhorts the people of God to remember? It is a continuous command. It's right up there with fear not as being one of the greatest repeated commands of Scripture. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 42, when he's depressed... He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? And then he preaches to his own soul. He says, hope in God, for I will yet praise him. But he doesn't stop there. What does he do next? He starts to recount the things that God has done for him. Okay. Again, the problem for us as Christians is a myopicness. It's that certain facts become elevated. Remember when Peter walks on water? He believes who Jesus is and he says, Jesus, if you can walk on water and you command me to walk on water, I can do it too. And he gets out there and then he saw the wind and the waves and he started to sink. The facts are no longer equal. Jesus is no longer who he is because the wind and the waves loom large. Have you had that happen in your life? Recount. Remember. Review. In fact, After I pray here, we're going to have an opportunity to take communion, and that's what makes communion so significant. Because of all the things that God has done for you, not one of them was as faithful or as loving or as significant or as demonstrative of his everlasting care for you than the death of Jesus Christ. And so we take the bread and we say, this is my body that was broken for you, and we eat it to remember this is what God has done for me. And in the same way that I ingest this bread and it becomes part of me, so also that has become part of me. When we drink of the, of, the, of the cup and we remember the new covenant, fully sealed already in the blood of Christ and available to us, we remind ourselves of the grounds of our relationship with God that does not stand on your performance last week. It does not stand on if you're overcoming this pet sin now or yesterday or tomorrow. It stands on the completed work of Jesus Christ. I don't know why this verse keeps coming to mind, but it did last week as well. In Romans, God says this. It's, it's, what Paul would say. it's what Paul would say to the disciples in the boat. If God has given us his only son, how will he not give you all good things? If he's given you the bread of life in Jesus Christ, why are you worried about the bread of dinner? Perspective. Perspective. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I don't invite you to take communion because it's just an external representation of a reality that hasn't taken root yet. And I would encourage you to the reality. If you're not there, if you're not ready to receive Jesus, to place your faith in him like we talked about this morning, but you're interested, in if it's true, if it's real, all I'm asking you to do this morning is, is to come to God as if you need him. And say, God, if these things are true, open my eyes to see the truth. Don't just sit with your arms crossed, going, all right, God, your turn to prove yourself. Say, instead of, God, where are you? Ask God, why can't I see you? Take an inventory. Ask what you're really talking about. If this is true, what would it mean for your life? And why would that make you resistant to it? These are important questions that we don't always ask. And then I'd encourage you wholeheartedly, abundantly, search the scriptures study the bible ask your questions question god but question yourself as well bring your doubts but doubt your doubts because they're not just ideas and questions they're willful resistances they're last stands against the possibility of a completely different way of life let's pray father god Wherever we're at this morning, we need fresh eyes. We need new sight. What makes the disciples so like that deaf and dumb man is they cannot speak rightly and properly as your representatives until they hear rightly and properly, perceive and understand. And many of us find ourselves in the same boat this morning. We need fresh eyes and open ears. We need hearts to be re-softened again because they've grown calcitrant we need our vision to be expanded because it's grown myopic and narrow. We need you again to bring life, to speak words that we cannot hear that give us hearing. God, it's not just that your message is out there, and if we just dial in and tune into the right station, we'll find it. We are broken radios that need to be fixed. We pray that you would fix us this morning. We pray that you'd help us to review and remember and recount your faithfulness, to do the math on God's past evidence and apply that pattern, that history to our present circumstances. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the one who came to open the eyes of the blind, to make it so that the lame would leap and walk and that the mute would praise you. We pray that you would open our lips like the psalmist so that our mouths would declare your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and take some time and respond to who God is and who he proclaims to be in his word this morning.